0: Felt like I had background soundtrack to be like, good morning. That's good. It's nice to see all of you. I hope that you are well. Today, uh, we're going to begin a new series here called Legacy. and maybe you're younger and you don't think about that all the time, because I have found that when you're younger, you don't think about the word legacy all that much. Maybe you're older, you think about that word all the time. For all of us, this series each week is going to focus it one-on-one aspect from the early church of the kind of legacy they left us so that we can ask ourselves, maybe is there something for us to learn there about the kind of legacy we want to leave, even now, even here as a church, because we're all doing this all the time. So each week you're gonna uh, get to experience a little bit of that. So let me start this way today. I'm gonna start uh, a little bleak um, with some statistics. If you hate statistics, you're welcome. Okay, so in the United States for a very long time, uh, or just a decent length of time here, on average year after year after year, and this was pretty consistent for a span of time, about 4,000 new churches were planted every year. Do you know that? Every year, about 4,000 new churches in the United States of America were planted. And here's what makes that really interesting to me is when you start to think about that statistic, isn't there a part of you that looks and goes, well, then why isn't there a church on like every corner in America? You start to compound that over time and those numbers, that just becomes really, really significant. Like we should be seeing churches 4,000 every single year. That is enormous. But here's the truth is that For every one of those churches that are started, uh, or I'm sorry, every five of those churches that are started, only one of them makes it. So four of those churches end or close and always within a five-year window. And I share that because this whole idea of starting a church or this enterprise of becoming a church, being a church, attending, like it's a little more fragile than what we think sometimes just in terms of getting off the ground. It's not an easy thing to get going. Beyond that, despite the fact that 4,000 new churches were started every year, the statistic I haven't shared is how many churches closed every year. And here's that number, 3,700 and those aren't all those new churches, right? Because remember, one in five survives theirs. And so you actually have like almost 90% of that original number now that's, a, that's you know, closing down, so to speak, or going away. So that actually starts to account for older churches or churches that have been around for some point in time that, that were beginning to, to close and they didn't exist. And, and I know those are like hard statistics, but they're still in the positives. Do you see that? There's still a, a gross statistic there that, that's happening. But then... In 2019, and I should pause because we should remember 2019 is before 2020, right? It is before any of us knew how to spell the word COVID. It's before any of us had all kinds of reasons or thinking about how how the church works or difficulties of things based on that experience. 2019, what they found is that 3,000 new churches were opened and planted, right? About 3,000 that year, give or take, depending on who's running the stats and doing the surveys. So 1,000 less, but 4,500 Protestant churches were closed that year. And that's before COVID, you guys. And I, I just wanted to illustrate this to just show complexity. If you've, if you've had a narrative in your head where you're like, well, it's because of just the last couple of years here that churches have been really struggling. No, actually, there's been some difficulty that's been happening at the larger picture before any of those things occurred. Many of the churches, that were able to beat this, right? During these times, beat these uh, statistics, they were able to to grow or thrive or do something else. For for most of those churches, what we saw though, wasn't that they were suddenly like all kinds of new people were coming to Christianity and, and the mission was growing and there's just all these people that are now becoming believers that weren't before. Most of the churches that grew exponentially occurred because of an increasing polarity in the United States of America that didn't just find itself in the political landscape, found itself in the church landscape as well. Where what happened, and many of you guys, you know this, you're aware of this already, people began to look and, and go, I, I want a church that's more conservative because I'm more conservative and so I want to go unite with the people that I want to be around. Or I want a church that's more liberal because I'm liberal and I want to go unite with the people that, that I'm around. And and so people kind of just banded together in groups of places and some of the churches that kind of put their, put their walls up and drew the lines and those things, they started to grow by kind of vacuuming up some of the other people in the areas, but we didn't see Christendom turn at large. And what ended up happening is that many of the churches, the the key recipe to survive and to grow in seasons and times like now, is to raise your voice to the degree that the people who hate the things you hate come and band with you, and we draw the lines and we build the walls and we do the things. And for many of the other pieces, it's just become increasingly hard to be a church. Make no mistake. As a pastor who has been a pastor for 20 years now, it's weird to think about that. 20 years I've been a pastor. I can tell you that it has become increasingly difficult. It's become harder and harder to be a church who's unwaveringly focused on putting our faith and focus and heart on following Jesus Christ as opposed to getting absorbed into whatever The landscape is around us in different moments at times. That's a difficult thing, to make Christ central, to see him so clearly. It's become harder to be that kind of a church, but not just for us. It's just difficult to be a church in general sometimes. Do you see that? It's just complicated. That's why I'm so thankful for you all. That's why I'm so glad that you're here and I'm so glad we get to do this and be a part of this together. But it is a little bit complicated. You know, when I share those things with you, those statistics, how does it make you feel? I mean, think about it for just a moment. If it makes you feel sad or like a little discouraged, I get that. If it makes you feel a little hopeful because you're here and maybe you're trying to experience something, I I, am encouraged by that. I, I mean, I get that too. For me, I'm gonna be honest, I just kind of vacillate back and forth on the spectrum sometimes. Of like, wow, does this make me sad? Does this make me concerned? Am I excited? Is there potential? Where am I on this whole spectrum of things? And I can get lost in this. Can I tell you why I get lost in it? It's because I've got two daughters and I keep looking at them. And just really honestly with you all, I, I keep wondering not what the church will be like for them. They're getting old enough to where I can kind of imagine it, though I'm not sure. I have no idea what the church will be like for their kids. And so I just, and I don't, and it's weird for me because for years, there were moments and times where I kind of could, could imagine that. I could look forward into the future based on what I was seeing and feeling and just kind of think about it. And there's a part of me right now that if I'm really honest, I don't know what that legacy is when they're standing there looking back at this moment and what they're then experiencing in the future. It's different, isn't it? And I'm not saying this to like, so clamp down and be afraid. I just, it's an interesting time to be a church, friends. It's a difficult time, but the truth is, is it's always been difficult. It's always been a little bit complicated. And I found myself wrestling with this question, and this is a question that this series is really built on, and it's this, how did the early church do it? Because I know a lot of times we have this like very idyllic, Version of the early church where, you know what? They just got together and they prayed and they sang kumbaya. And people like were knocking on their doors being like, tell me about Jesus. And they're like, let me tell you about Jesus. And then they came in and then they, no, the early church wasn't like that. The early church actually arrived in a scene where no one liked them. I know that's a weird way to say it, but they did. Nobody liked them. Nobody, like, whether you were a Roman official or whether you were uh, a Jewish, uh, you know, following, practicing, believing Jewish person at the time, either way, you were kind of threatening the balance of the things that were. Nobody liked them. And yet, they found a way to survive through this. They found a way not just to endure, but to thrive through this. And now here we all are 2,000 years later. That's crazy. We are the legacy of this early church church who stood in a very complicated time and some difficult moments and things, and they stepped into that in some really important ways. And that left a legacy that's now me and you and that we're a part of. And so let's learn from that, maybe so that we can glean a little bit of wisdom in how to to move forward and how to learn and how to engage even here and even now. The question I want us to wrestle with over the next three weeks is this, how did the early church endure when so many other movements simply faded away? Because you know that happened a lot, right? Do you know Jesus wasn't the first person to claim to be the Messiah? We don't all know this. That there were several other people to claim to be the Messiah that had movements of people come around them. They all fizzled out and they died out. Why didn't Christianity? Why didn't the early church? It wasn't the first movement of people to gather around to try to pursue God and yet it persisted. There's something so powerful about some of the things they went through and some of the things that they did. And I just believe the early church was able to not only endure, but to thrive because they left a legacy that was larger than the moment that they were in. And that became something very, very powerful, friends. And I find myself asking me, asking you, asking us as a church, what is the legacy we will leave? I mean, I know some of you are just trying to figure your lives out right now. You're in good company. But step back for just two seconds because there's a larger story here too. What's the legacy you will leave? What's the legacy I will leave? What's the legacy we will leave? 30 years from now, when people look back on this moment, which isn't that long, but it's long enough, what will people say about who we are, about Cassus Church, and what does that mean? And I think it's so important for us to focus on this and to look at this right now. After all, we aren't just a 60-year-old church, though we are. We are the legacy of the early church. And I think there's something important for us to see as we seek to leave a legacy of our own. So that's where we're headed. To do this today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. And this is significant because Acts is where you get to see the birth of the church. You get to see the story beginning to unfold. And so I, I want to tell you some of that story um, this morning. And, and there's some things I'll leave out. There's some things that, that I'll focus on. But just here's kind of the, the gist of, of what's happened up to this point. So that when we get to Acts, we understand the complexity and the uniqueness and the power of what the early church is in. And it's this, I wanna go back to the bigger picture. Jesus was born into this world and he was the hope of the world. He's the Messiah, the savior, the, the, thing, the, script, the one that the scriptures had been speaking to and speaking about. And so he enters into existence and hope swells and the people are like, this could be our ticket, this could be it, this could be the one who makes the world right, unites us with God, all the things we care so much about. And he arrives on the scene and he begins to travel around and begins his ministry, and he starts to tell people some really unique things. He tells people that they, they are accepted and that they are loved. He starts to tell people that were outside of temples and outside of religious practices that the kingdom of God is actually for them, and not only is it for them, it's right here and right now. Why? Because he's standing in front of them. He's saying life and relationship with God is available to you. And it's, it's not based on all this other stuff, but, but on grace. And it's not how well you follow the rules, but, but on the condition of your heart. And it's, it's deeper than what you thought, but it's easier than what you've been doing. And it's, it's faith in me and come and follow me. And he starts this new Jesus movement and it's this powerful thing. He begins his ministry and he gathers 12 disciples around him to, to follow him and to, to learn this way of being as this Jesus movement takes steam. And other people begin to, to gather along with, because it wasn't just 12 people following around all the time. Other people said, I want this. I love this. I'm a part of this. And they started to join up and it all begins to take off as the multitudes of people are following around, listening to his teaching, seeking to be healed, wanting to even hear who these disciples are and what's going on. It's this big movement that's beginning to happen and then it almost gets squashed out. Because all of a sudden, Right? The devout religious leaders. These are people in your Bibles that are referred to as the Pharisees or people that are referred to as the Sadducees, which you have to understand more than just the names. These are the people that are devout religious leaders. These are teachers of the Bible. These are people with a deep kind of respect for, for tradition, a deep respect for what does it mean to follow God, a deep respect for how to interpret and understand the scriptures. They held this in higher esteem than most of us probably are even aware of in this. This is who this was. And they find themselves looking at this new Jesus movement that sprouted out. And they find themselves looking at this new rabbi, Jesus, who's, who's teaching and who seems to, to be claiming to be the Messiah. And the things that he is teaching violates their understanding of what the Bible has to say. It violates their understanding of biblical doctrine and different pieces and things that they had sorted through and had over time. And they go, no, we can't let this happen. This is going to push out our very existence. This is a destabilizing type of a moment. And so they as religious leaders band together and they begin to accuse Jesus of all sorts of moments. They begin to try to trap him up in the Bible with different moments of interpretation and things and where he stands on certain moments and certain issues and points of reference and time. And, and Jesus just brilliantly in each of these moments keeps kind of navigating through them and they get more and more angry. And eventually these accusations stir up the anger in the general public. And Jesus starts to get looked at at this particular moment as someone who's stirring up the people. And when you stir up the people, do you know who's suddenly gonna get involved? The Roman government, because Rome doesn't want an uprising. They just want everybody to settle down and stay in line. And so Rome jumps in and they involve themselves and the Jewish leaders, they arrest Jesus and they, they bring him in because if you can squash the head of a movement, you can kill the body. Right? This is age-old just strategy that people use. If you can squash the head of a thing, the other thing will fade out. And this is what they've done to every person who claimed to be a leader before them. Every person who stood and entered into these ways that didn't fit, didn't work, didn't align with this larger group of Jewish religious devout Bible-believing people thought those people would get pushed out to the side. And if you can squash the head, you can squash the movement. And so they did. They, they accuse him and the, the people rile up and they begin to cheer to crucify him. And so Jesus is tried, he's crucified and he dies. And in that moment, it's like, that thing's gonna be over. Can you imagine if you were one of these early followers and wait, Jesus was just killed. Wait, the person leading us, our rabbi, our teacher, he's gone. You didn't have 2000 years of theology, tradition, and history to explain the moment for you. You just had to stare at it in the face, it's gone. And it seemed like right at the moment where hope was lost, right at the moment where this movement of Christianity was to fade off into oblivion or be reabsorbed back into conservative traditional Judaism at that point in time, Jesus rises again. And I have issue with how he rose. I know this is weird. It's a weird thing to say. You wanna know why I have issue? Because he didn't suddenly rise again and then appear in thunder and lightning in the clouds as if to be like, y'all killed the wrong guy. He didn't. He didn't like suddenly be like we, like everybody pay attention. I'm alive, grand mistake, what next? Like he, he didn't, he didn't do that. We would have done that. I would have done that. Some like, right, like it makes sense because now, now everybody's cued in. Now what does he do? He, he rises from the dead, powerful, conquers death. And then he goes and he begins to appear to his followers and to his people. And he begins to say, hope is not lost, I'm still alive. In fact, I'm alive in you. In fact, if you base your life on me, I just died for the forgiveness of sins that if you put the full weight of your trust and full weight of your life and you just bank it on me, trust in me, follow me, it's good enough. It's everything. Let's do this together. And in fact, he looks at his disciples, he looks at his followers and he says, as part of this new Jesus movement, My mission is now your mission. And he says, I want you to go into the ends of the earth and I want you to make disciples, which is him saying, I want you to go love people the way that I've loved you. I want you to go and fold people into the same story that I have unfolded you into. I want more grace. I want more connection with God and I want it for the whole world. And then Jesus ascends into heaven, which for their purposes, they're like, and then he left us. And he says, surely I'm with you even to the end of the age. And they know he's with them, but before they could fall in physically and he's right here and now they're, they're left. And the book of Acts starts with this early group of people banded together in a room in Jerusalem, more or less, trying to figure out what to do next and how this whole thing's gonna go. And that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter two. Before we read, do you know how many people this was? Acts chapter one tells us it was about 120 people. To give you some context of why this is so unrelatable for you and I right now, do you know how many people are statistically identify themselves as Christians in the globe right now? 2.3 billion people. 2.3 billion people in this world are like, yeah, I'm a Christian, I identify as a Christian. We're talking about a moment in time where only 120 people claim to follow Jesus Christ and embrace relationship, and they were occupying one city in a nation the size of New Jersey. this is the beginning of the movement in Acts chapter two, as we read verse one, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it was filling, it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If you're like, what just happened? Here's what just happened. 120 people who follow Jesus and don't know what to do next and don't know how to take this thing to the ends of the earth quite yet. I find themselves praying and sitting in a room and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and empowers them. And I don't know whether they just, like, saw a flaming tongue or whether they walked around in public and everyone saw a flaming tongue. I think if everyone saw a flaming tongue, there'd be a lot more people running for the hills, because that'd be terrifying. Like, if I suddenly just walked to you with any kind of fire, you'd freak out, much less one floating over the top of me, right? And so I don't know how this happened, but here's what essentially occurs. The Holy Spirit empowers the early believers, and they walk out into a city that is massively populated because of something called Pentecost. Pentecost is a Jewish holiday, really significant one, because this is where the city of Jerusalem swells up with more people than at any other time in the year. It's like a pilgrimage of sorts. People venture in from all over the place to celebrate this thing together, not just from Israel, but from Jews who'd move away to other countries and nations, Jews who spoke different languages because of where they'd been living. They all come into Jerusalem, the city floods with people, these 120 empowered by the spirit walk out into the midst of the crowd and they begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the population of people for the very first time. And miraculously, every person who's hearing this is hearing it spoken to them in the kindness and the warmth of their own language. And it says that they are mesmerized by it. It says that they are perplexed by it. And What is happening? Peter stands up in the midst of all of this and he begins to give a message. And the message that he essentially proclaims is, he says, Jesus is what the Bible has been pointing to this entire time. Jesus is who we have been waiting for. He says, Jesus, whom you have cru- crucified, in and, and Acts 2 says, is Lord and the Christ. When he says that, it means he's the one whom we follow, whom we base our lives on, who leads us, who guides us. He is our Lord, and he's the Christ. He's cosmic. He was there at the beginning of creation. He is the force and power that moves through and in it all. He's all of it. He's what we have been waiting for. He is our hope realized, him whom you crucified. And in that particular moment, he gives an invitation to people to follow Jesus in this way, to put their belief in him, and people do. And they get off the hamster wheel of religion that they had been running in, and they start to base their faith on an entirely new set of principles and grace in Christ. And it becomes this powerful type of moment. In Acts chapter two, verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So 120 people in a city in a place the size of New Jersey suddenly turns into 3,000 strong by the power of the Holy Spirit as the gospel of Jesus Christ makes itself known, right? And this is the birth of the church. Do you know that? That's the, this is how the church comes to be. It is an amazing origin story, if you ask me. It's a really powerful origin story, but it's not enough. Because there's lots of things with powerful origin stories and there are lots of things that amass movements of 3,000 people that don't live anymore, that don't exist anymore. They don't endure through the age. You see, that's an amazing origin story. But we care about more than that for our purposes today. We're trying to ask the question, but what did they do? How did they endure? How did they not only endure, how they thrive to leave the legacy that we, you, me, all of us are now a part of? Acts chapter two, verses 42 is the first time in Acts where it zooms out and gives this summary statement about who, what they did, who, what the church engaged in. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And this brings me to the one point that I wanna make here this morning in terms of this type of legacy they left. And it's this, the early church was able to endure because they created a legacy of unlearning so that they could learn what they needed to most, what they needed most. And I know when I said that some of you are like, wait, what? Or maybe it breaks your brain just a minute. So let me repeat it. The early church was able to endure because they created a legacy of unlearning so that they could learn what they needed most. Now, if that doesn't make sense, we're gonna spend some time for the rest of our morning unpacking this here together. I want you to think about that first word or that first sentence there. They devoted themselves, right, back in Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That word devoted, it's different than when I say like, I'm really devoted to my wife. If I say that, you guys would be like, oh, you love her, you're smitten with her, like that, right? Like if if I said that, it's different than that. It's like when you talk to somebody who's been married for like 40 years in their 70s and they're like, I'm devoted to my wife. And you look, and you're like, you've been through some stuff. You know that marriage isn't like a cakewalk in the park. And you know that it's really hard for two people to form a life and share life. And you know you've had to wrestle through, and you've had to churn. And each of you have found a larger story. And you've let go of some pieces as you form something bigger than what either of you could have done independently. That's this idea of devoted, it's this idea of wrestling through, it's of staying with something and it implies a level of difficulty and persistence in it, right? They devoted themselves. It wasn't like, and then they just opened themselves up to the apostles' teaching and they were smitten with it. No, they, they all began to wrestle together through things. And what does it say that they, they wrestled together? Well, they wrestled through the apostles' teaching. They also wrestled through communion, which was something that they used to practice just once a year, not as a communion moment, but the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine for a festival they did called Passover, but now they're doing it every week. They're, they're praying together, they're meeting together, they're starting to engage here, right? Friends, when you read scripture, don't just read the words. And I mean this. Don't just read the words, see the audience. Remember that this is a real story for real people in real time. These are real, real interactions. Read. Don't just read the words, Who's the audience? What's the author caring about? What was the situation they were in? Do your best to put yourself in their shoes and in their eyes and try to wrestle and engage with this. Don't just look at what was said. Dare to ask why it was said so that you can capture the heart and the beauty of what's there, right? This is how we chew through, how we wrestle with, with Scripture. And I want to do that together for just a moment. Let's think of this back here in Acts chapter 2. So, there are 3,000 people who begin to follow Jesus. And when this happens and the church is born, it happens where? Jerusalem, right? In the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. We just read that. Okay. So when 3,000 people find themselves in the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem and they begin to follow Jesus, why are they there? Well, they're there for Pentecost, right? They're part of this, this larger feast and festival and thing. So... We know, just think about it. So that means that they're actually practicing something. They're actually engaged in something. They're not people who are hundred miles away and didn't bother to show up. These are people in it. These are people in this moment. You see, this is a bigger deal. So when we read that 3,000 people found themselves in the city of Jerusalem and they began to embrace Jesus during this time of Pentecost, what can we assume about them culturally? Who are they? They are Jewish, right? And it's not just that they're, they're Jewish. They're, they're engaged. They're in this and this is so important for us. Think about what it means for these 3,000 people to suddenly embrace faith and relationship in Christ through the power of his grace. These are people, that we, and we should know this, they grew up reading and reciting and memorizing scripture. They grew up reading and reciting and memorizing scripture. By the time they were eight, they had a significant portion of this that was already starting to be ingrained. By the time they're 15, lots of it. And on top of that, this wasn't a thing they did in the quiet of their own homes. They did this together. They practiced feasts throughout the year that anchored them in scriptural passages. They read and reread things as a community of people. They had doctrine, so much doctrine, and rabbis, and teaching, and, and all kinds of things that informed them every step of the way. There was even symbolism that pointed back to the Bible on their doorsteps, on their clothing, on the things that they did. They are inundated with an understanding and a value and a reverence for the Bible, right? For the Old Testament, which is the version they had. and, and, And they want to follow God. And they're, these are Jewish people. These people care a lot. They are in they value all of this. And because of this religious background, they grew up with traditions and they grew up with practices, many of them, more than, more than I can get into. But here's three that are important to recognize even just for this. One, they must be circumcised as a sign of the covenant that they are the children of God. A covenant God made with Abraham way back in Genesis, and it's a signal of the promise of the covenant. So, in order to to be a child of God, to be grafted in, to be a part of this thing, you must be circumcised. And they know this. Every Jewish person knows this. This is like 101. They must not eat, here's another thing, they must not eat or do anything that the Bible deems as unclean or they will be unacceptable to God. There's all kinds of things that they're not to eat, there's all kinds of stuff they're not to associate with and it's because of passages in scriptures that seem clear that are found in Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Numbers or you name it. And they've got all of these things that they're supposed to do. And lastly, they know they must live their lives in obedience to the commands of the Bible so that they can know that they are righteous and approved of by God. And in terms of what does that look like and what does that mean? They had plenty of people teaching them what it looked like, teaching them what it meant as they followed tradition after tradition, moment after moment, like their fathers did and their fathers and their generations before them. This is deeply ingrained. Do you see this? But all those years ago in Acts chapter two, these are the very people who decided to stop putting their faith in obedience to the law or in religious custom and practice and to say the sole weight of my faith, the sole weight of my theology, the sole weight of my righteousness of everything else, I'm gonna rest squarely on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna anchor myself there. The sole weight of all of this, I'm now gonna anchor in the fact that there is grace for me, there is love for me, there is forgiveness, not in sacrifice, but in the last sacrifice that is his death and his resurrection. And now there is forgiveness and love and goodness with God as I step fully into the kingdom and say, who's coming with me? And they did this, 3,000 people. And suddenly it's not about what you eat or don't eat for them, which this was huge. Do you see how big of a deal this would have been? I mean, this is massive. Suddenly it's not about what you eat or don't eat, but about how you love your neighbor and embrace the love of Christ for you. Suddenly, it's not about whether you have been circumcised or followed a ritual or done some specific practice that makes you belong to God, but that because of Jesus, we're now grafted in, adopted as sons and daughters of God. And now your life is not about being righteous and being approved of because of your obedience, but your forgiveness and your grace, the way that you know that you are acceptable to God is simply because of the blood that is poured out in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the grace he now lavishes upon you to say, welcome home. And this becomes their way. And what's so crazy about this, if this is, if if you're like, yeah, I mean, I've heard some of this. No, think about this, really think about it for one moment. Friends, what those people chose to believe on that day was a radical departure from what they had, what, what they woke up believing the day before. When they went to sleep that night, they believed something so different. They had put their faith and entered into something so different than what had happened to them and what they had thought just the day before. Do you see how, how crazy this would have been? And then they're like, cool, let's all hang out. It'll work out great. It's the early church. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. When we read that, it's just such a simple sentence. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and we were like, I wonder what they had to learn. No, there's something way bigger here because of who this audience is. Yes, there were important things for them to learn. Yes, there was so much new to wrap their head around. But friends, they would have had to chew through it, wrestle with it, struggle with it at times. And we see this throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And here's why. This is really important here this morning. Because when you step into something that is profoundly different and new, the hardest part isn't always what it is you now have to learn. More often than not, the hardest part is what you now have to unlearn. If you've lived long enough in your life, you know this is true in general. (laughs) When you step into something new, the hardest thing, I say it again, I just want, I want this to soak in. The hardest thing isn't always the new thing, although that's important to learn. The hardest thing is stepping into that new thing because of all that you know have to unlearn in order to step into it. And this is what the church begins to do. And it becomes a profound kind of legacy that involves me and that involves you. You know, a woman who used to be Catholic came to me with some questions. Uh, This happens all the time because there's lots of people that have gone to a Catholic church their whole life and then they show up here and they're like, what are you doing? (laughs) This is so weird. And you're normal. Like I, I get it. I, t- I have this conversation all the time because it's kind of confusing, and it just seems so different sometimes. And so I have lots of people that will say, "Can I talk to you about this?" Or how do Can you explain some of this to me? Other people are smiling because they know what you're walking through because they've walked through it themselves, right? And so this woman came to me with me, and she. She just had questions about all the stuff that we do or don't do and why it feels different. And as I talked to her, I just asked her about her upbringing what her background was and some of these things. And she talked to me about how she'd gone to a very specific Catholic school and a specific Catholic church. And she'd grown up in this whole thing. And, and she says it was really hard for her and she doesn't like it, she left it. And I said, why? And then she starts to recall this memory. And she says, when I was in middle school, she had a growth spurt. And so she grew a little more that year than what she thought she would, I guess, or that anybody really aware of. And so one day she showed up to class and a skirt that used to be below the knee was now above the knee. And so one of the nuns, and you have to say, when I say nun, she looks at this nun as like, this is a person who represents this faith, this religion, this thing. This is a symbol. This is not just a person. This is a big deal. So the nun brings her out of her seat and takes her to the front of the room and basically looks to the class and says, let me show you why this is not appropriate. And do you see where her her dress falls and then takes a ruler out and smacks the back of her hand in front of the whole class, and then sends her out of the room to go find different clothes to change into, and I quote, lest she lead anyone else into temptation. And as she's telling me this story, which happened years and years and years and years ago, she's much older at this point, tears well up in her eyes and she starts to cry because some moments that you learn in the past still are alive in you today, right? And she's just so sad about all of this. And I said, you know, I, I decided in that moment, maybe I can be a different voice. And so I looked at her and I just said, you know, you are a child of God. Your body is a precious gift to you and the world around you. And you don't need to carry shame with that. God made you. And, and, and I start to speak. And she just laughs and shuts me down and goes, Ryan, I know. I know that. I just... I can't seem to let go of how I feel. And then, this is when she really starts to cry. She looks at me and she says, to this day, and she'd been married for some time, she says, every time my husband compliments me on my looks, I just feel so much guilt and shame. Because some things, most often, when it comes to life, it is not always the new thing that we learn that is the hardest, it is the unlearning we have to do to embrace the new thing, isn't it, friends? We know this in some level inside of us. There was another moment where I sat with a gentleman who uh, had grown up really in a conservative evangelical church, Protestant church, and he wanted to talk with me because he was mad at the way I was teaching. And this happens from time to time, and so, he, he was frustrated because he wanted me to, to just call out that this is sin and that sin and basically let people know that they, they're wrong and they need to try harder and do better and some of these things and that, that, that needs to be there. And was like, why aren't you doing more of that? Like, I'm frustrated, I'm attending church and I don't hear you doing that all of the time. And I said, well, are you struggling with any of those things? And he said, no, I just, but they are. And I'm like, well, they know. And he goes, no, they don't. And then he looked at me and he said, Ryan, I just worry that someone can come to your church and they can attend there and, and they can just think that whatever they're gonna do is just fine and dandy and none of it matters and that, and that they can do whatever they want and not care about any of the consequences. And at this point in time, I was going through a counseling program, getting my master's in counseling and I was in diagnosis class. Is not helpful because I just really quickly went, oh, no, only psychopaths believe that, and that's a statistically small percentage of the population, like, and so, what you can know is that, no, like, that's actually really, really uncommon, and I, and he just started laughing at me, this is not helpful, and I know it's not. And I looked at him, and I said, well, what's what's the hardest thing about, this is impacting you, this isn't just that you're looking around you, this is impacting you, and I admire this man's honesty, because he looks at me, and with great honesty, he said, Ryan, it's just not fair. And that was the truth and it was so honest and it was so raw and so real. He said it's just not fair. He, he started to talk to me about his upbringing. He grew up in a really structured, conservative, fundamental type of environment. He grew up being taught that you obey the Bible and you respect God and you do these things and it costs you and like, this is what it is. You gotta get all the sin out of your life and you gotta fight and work and do all of this stuff. And he's like, and I have been doing that. And he goes, I'm not, I sin sometimes, but for the most part, like I, it's hard to do this and I, I'm, I'm really fighting for this and, And this is important to me and I've put in all this work and all this effort and then you have somebody who just comes into church for the very first time and their life is a mess and you look at them and tell them that they're accepted and loved by Jesus and it just doesn't seem fair that they don't have to do any of the commitments and things that I've had to do. And man, do I respect that honesty because that exists in more of us and even at times in me than we think. I respect that he said that and I just said, you know, there are parable after parable that deal with exactly this thing because people were really mad about what Jesus was teaching because it's hard. And a whole bunch of the New Testament is about a group of Jewish people looking at a group of Gentiles and saying, why don't you have to do any of the things that we have been raised doing? You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater." and they're fighting over this thing. And as we started to look at some of those passages and some of those moments, we just got to sit back and go, you know what? At the end of the day, God isn't always pointing to fairness here. He's just pointing to his heart for people and that that's what we have to trust and then that's who we see Jesus being. And then I reminded him of something that I wanna remind all of us today. Do you know that Christianity is one of the most unfair religions in the world? If you don't like that, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do about it. It is. It is one of the most unfair religions. Our entire religious system is based, it is predicated on the idea that Jesus, him who had no sin, him who did not deserve to die, took upon all of the things that we carried, that we had, so that he might relieve us of all of that, that he might take consequence and punishment and all the things and all the hardship so that we didn't have to carry the burden any longer. We stand upon one of the most unfair things in human history and we call it beautiful and anchor our entire faith in it. It is one of the most unfair religions on the planet, but it is consistent in terms of God being after people because of the heart he has for them over and over and over again. And he just looks at me at that moment. He goes, oh, I know. And he goes, it's just hard, Ryan. You have to understand I'm an engineer. They laughed last service. I don't think I get it. I don't. I don't work with a ton of engineers. He said, I'm an engineer. I see things pretty black and white and it just seems like It's just, I want the scales to add up. And I was like, and I'm thankful that they don't. You see, sometimes, sometimes, friends, it's not the new thing that's hardest to learn. It's unlearning the old thing that allows us to step more fully into the new. And this is the great struggle of religion. This is the great struggle of tradition. This is the great struggle of so many things around us. So much of the New Testament writings are about the unlearning of what people had to go through in order for them to stand more fully in the grace and the love of Jesus Christ and to extend that for others. So much of it is the churning, the wrestling, the fighting through. Even communion, as I mentioned before, so subversive. Do you realize that they would practice this once a year to remember the story of how God brought them out of the land of, of Egypt and into being a people for himself? And once a year, they'd remember that freedom. And then they'd talk about the giving of the law a different Like they, they had all of this stuff. And what does Jesus do? He goes, oh no, when you do this, this is gonna be my body broken for you and my blood poured out for you. Meaning keep consuming me and don't turn back to this other thing. And because they have been practicing that for a very long time, it's really easy just to go back into those old patterns and habits. Anybody here who experienced so much conditional love, they didn't know what to do with it growing up. When I say that love is unconditional, you're like, yeah, on Wednesdays. And then the rest of the week, I'm struggling with it because you just slip back into that other thing. And so they churned and they practiced and they ate together and they communed together in this way so that they could keep reinforcing this because it's hard to step into the new when you have so much to unlearn from the last piece. Jesus looks at one point in time and he talks about new wine not being able to be poured into old wineskins. skins. You can't take this new thing that he's doing and just pouring it into the same old religion and the same old law because it'll burst the skin. It doesn't fit, it can't hold it. It needs a brand new container. And this is what the church wrestles with. That's why so much of the book of Acts and Paul's writings are about people needing to let go of the commands in the Bible around circumcision as they're looking and going, but you can't just erase the Old Testament and they're going, there's something else we're putting our faith in right here. And not everybody needs to be circumcised. If you want to do that as a culture and a tradition for you, that's that. But it's not your righteousness and it's not how you're grafted in. It's Christ, friends. So much of the New Testament is asking the Jewish people to unlearn some of the ways that they had come to interpret and read Scripture that they were like, but it says right here, or follow God, so that they didn't end up leading new people towards a different gospel. And there's all of this tension about it. The book of Galatians is anchored in this particular tension. This even hit them morally. We all look at this and we're like, and then like the church could eat pork. No. Do you understand how big of a deal this is? Think about this. They have to wrestle with this morally. They have passage and text all throughout the Old Testament to go, this is what it clearly says, and this is what it is, and this is how it is. And there are all of these words about what you can eat and what you can't eat and who you should associate with and who you shouldn't. And it uses words like abominable or detestable or not approved of or whatever it is. And then Peter is going to have a vision, not the entire nation, not all the Jewish people. Peter, one dude, is going to have a vision from God. And God's going to see all these animals lowered down on a sheet as Peter looks and he's like, what do I do with this? And he hears a voice that says, do not make unclean that which God has made clean. And then he makes a reference, not just to the animals, but to people. And this is how Gentiles end up becoming a part of the church. And so if you are not Jewish and you exist here today, we have to be thankful for a legacy of an early church that wrestled through the tensions and wrestled through the things so that we could sit in the seats that we now do in the confidence that we now have because there was a lot to wrestle with and a lot to unlearn. And can you imagine how hard that would have been? Because it is. The early church was able to endure because they created a legacy of unlearning what no longer served them so that they could learn that Jesus matters most. This is huge. And I walk through some of this today because every generation of Christians in a church have to wrestle with the same question. For all time, this is just true and you see it ongoing and ongoing where we all have to ask the question, given my experiences, given the things that I've walked through, what is there that I need to unlearn so that I can step more fully into the knowledge, the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ for me and the world around me? And man, is that a hard question to wrestle with. I thought I'd just leave you with that and I should based on time, I apologize. (laughs) But I'm gonna leave you with two things quick just because it feels unkind not to two ways to wrestle with that here this morning, and these are just questions to ask yourself. One, is there something personal that I need to unlearn so that I can better know the heart of Jesus? This is a tough question. Is there something personal that's happened to me or personal through me that I need to unlearn so that I can better know the heart of Jesus for me or the world around me? See, some of you have had personal experiences with religion, and sometimes that religion is Christianity, and the thing that you have been taught is that shame and condemnation are the things that religion is pushing at you on a constant basis and that your identity is to see yourself as a terrible person. You've had the Bible used as a weapon against you. You have had moments where somebody used power and authority and different things in religion to do something that wasn't appropriate, that betrayed you. You have had all kinds of moments in here and I know because I have these conversations with people on a regular basis. For some of you, you thought that the Bible a religious law was something that was supposed to mold you into how all of religion wanted you to be while you were trying to follow Jesus and didn't know what to do with it and you feel squashed out and pinned down. Some of you are here in this place and you can't bring yourself to read your Bible. I just talked to somebody like this. They can't bring themselves to read their Bible because it was used as a source of condemnation and they're scared that if they open it, it's just a judgment upon them as opposed to encountering the heart of God for them and the larger story that they get to be a part of. Some of you grew up in hostile environments or legalistic environments where you actually resonate with that engineer in my office where you're going, but it's not fair. And it just seems frustrating to you at different times. And there's an unlearning in you so that you can learn the goodness of grace of God for you and for others. We all come with our own backgrounds, our own baggages, our own moments, whatever your personal experience is, whatever those things are, I just want you to ask yourself the question, if it's keeping you from the grace of Jesus, if it's keeping you from standing more fully in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, if it's keeping you from engaging the world the way that Jesus loves and engages the world, then I'm asking you to wrestle with the potential that you might have some unlearning to do. And you don't have to do that alone. You can do that with one another. That's one of the beauties of being a church. I promise, if more of us were honest, we'd be like, yeah, me too. And I'm trying to figure this out and it's frustrating. You'd find, yeah, me too, there's hope though. And here's what my story has looked like and we can walk along with one another. So that we as this generation of people can wrestle with them some things so that the next generation of people doesn't have to wrestle with our stuff, do you see? That's the gift, that's the legacy we get to have. And I'm so grateful the early church wrestled the way they did. And here's the last thing and I'll end here. Is there something theological that I need to unlearn so that I can better know the heart of Jesus? And I watched your faces and some of you are freaking out. Let me explain. This is important. Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law but to fulfill or come to abolish the law or the prophets, which basically is him saying, this is the Bible, right? This is the the prophets and the law and this is the Bible they had. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we miss this because we're not Jewish and we didn't grow up with a rabbi. But the reality is, is in orthodoxy, when a rabbi would ask a question about interpretation of the Bible, he'd look at the disciples, or look at whoever his disciples were and say, what do you you think this text means? How do we interpret this? And then they would respond. And if they interpret it correctly, he would say, you have fulfilled the law. And if they interpret it incorrectly in a way that it was incongruent with the meaning of the text, he would say, you have abolished the law. And this is common rabbinic language. So when Jesus says this right here, what he's actually, saying is that he came to be the interpretation of scripture for us. He did not come to discredit the whole thing. He came to tell us what it really is and what it really looks like. He did not come to ultimately burn the whole thing away and be like, chuck it all out, like the baby with the bathwater. What he came to say is if you're confused about the Old Testament, if you don't know what to do with this passage, if you don't know who God might be or you don't know what this might mean, just focus on me and let me guide your interpretation of who God is and how God is. He came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So friends, If you have learned something theologically that does not seem like it fits with the heart and the person and the work of Jesus Christ, it might just be something you need to unlearn. And this is the great wrestling match for each of us. And man, is it important though. I drove a manual transmission car for three years, which means both my feet were busy and so was my hand. If anybody's done that, you know what this is like. And I did that for three years, and then one day I got an automatic after having not done this for a very long time, and I'm driving and I need to shift into higher gear. And so what do I do? I slam my foot down on the clutch. There's no clutch in an automatic, right? So what do I slam my foot down on? The brake. And everything comes screeching to a halt as I shift down into neutral or whatever was the next gear there, and the car freaks out and everything else. Friends, You've practiced doing one thing for a very long time. I am not telling you to abandon driving. I'm not telling you to abandon the road. I am not telling you to stop moving towards your intended destination. I'm telling you, if it is no longer serving you, if it is ultimately causing you to jerk, veer, grind the gears and veer off the road, and at times create harm to other people along the way, it's worth learning what the new wineskin looks like so that you can pour that good new wine into it as we anchor the truth of our hearts and our lives in Jesus Christ. That's the legacy for us as a church, friends. And I'm excited to be with you. And I hope in 30 years, they look back and say, you know, the world is a little crazy during that season, but Casas was a church that looked like the heart and the love and the work of Jesus. Let's pray. God, I come before you. And this whole thing's hard and complicated. It is. It's weird. We grow up with so much background and we grow up with certain traditions and we're just trying to figure it all out together. And it's a weird thing and it's good to know we're not alone. I thank you, Lord, that you walked the early church through this as they wrestled, Lord, and I pray that you encourage us to continue to do the same things. Lord, help us to be a church that is unwaveringly focused on loving you. Help us to be a church that stands firmly in who you are. Open our eyes, open our hearts, lead us and guide us that we might leave a legacy in your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.